My daughters both have Crohn's disease, and for a while, we thought one of them had celiac, which meant she couldn't have anything in her diet that contained gluten. So one morning, she asked me to make her some gluten-free waffles. So I reach into the kitchen cabinet, pull out some gluten-free flour, and I make her some waffles. And she eats two giant waffles and is happy as can be. And uh, later that day, I had to go to the Apple store to get my phone looked at. And as we're walking through the mall, she says, Daddy, I I don't feel so good. And I say, what's the matter? And she says, oh, my stomach isn't feeling so well. And so I ask her if she has to go to the bathroom. And she says, no, 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 I'll be fine. So we go into the Apple store, check in at the Genius Bar and wait to be seen. And after a little bit, my daughter says, I don't feel so good. And before I can ask if she has to go to the bathroom again, she starts throwing up all over the inside of the Apple store. Oh, no. Like just unloading all over the store. And Stephen, you've been to an Apple store before, right? You know these stores are like clean and pristine with like white tile floor. Well, the vomit is just going everywhere. It's like she hadn't thrown up for a couple of years and was like now making up for it. And the weird part about it was (laughs) no one in the store was acting like anything was out of the ordinary. So finally, someone from the store comes over. I apologize for all the puke on the floor. And she says, oh, don't worry, we'll clean it up. Then they send out this poor woman and she gets on her hands and knees and literally starts cleaning puke up off the floor. And I keep saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And she's like, no, uh, uh, it's okay. Anyway, we get home, and I realize that I had used regular flour instead of gluten-free flour, and it was all my fault for making my daughter sick. And uh, so I'm just a horrible father. You know, Jack, I've known you for a long time, and you learn something new every day. I think you're, I think you're just the right kind of dad. You know, I think I think making choices like that, these things happen, you know. I'm Jack Hergith. And I'm Stephen Kramer Glickman. And this is Never Surrender. The show where we sit down with the most successful people in the entertainment industry to talk about failure and how they pushed through it and never gave up. Because we've all failed. We've all had setbacks. Yeah, we've all questioned whether to keep going. But at some point, everybody struggles. Yeah. I mean, I've been let go from some of my favorite jobs. You and me both. We just hope that by listening to this podcast, it will help give you the strength to never surrender. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We're so excited to be talking to this guest today. She's an actress, comedian, and an LGBTQ plus advocate. She created and started her own show, Take My Wife, and has produced a number of her own podcasts, including the popular show, Query. Last year, she released her memoir, Save Yourself, an honest exploration of her journey with gender, sexuality, and faith. She faced plenty of setbacks in her life and career, but she is living proof of never giving up and never surrendering. This is Cameron Esposito. 
It is an absolute pleasure to be sitting down with you. Cameron Esposito, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's this nice to be so here. Cool. Yes, thank you so much for being here. Um, let's let's go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? Where... I grew up in Chicago. Well, not in Chicago. I grew up outside Chicago, 15 miles west of the city in a little teeny town called Western Springs. Oh, wow. Well, that's, yeah. I know where that is. You do? Yeah. I... Uh, I, I toured with a with a musical. Uh, oh yeah. my god! Oh, yeah, it's happening. Uh, and I ended up in Skokie. Sure. Um, which is not too far from from where you lived. We no, it's not, we yeah. went and visited there. Wow. Um, they well, have a Sizzler, I believe, in that in your hometown. Uh, very. I think the Sizzler might technically be over the town line in uh, Lagrange. I'm not sure. Uh, okay. Uh, but you, it could be. be right. It could be technically Western Springs. Yeah. I don't know. I'll wait for word from the Sizzler Corporation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> let's let's make sure to send an email yeah. to Sizzler. This podcast when is sponsored podcast is please, by Sizzler. Please confirm or sure. deny. That's, yes. We need to figure this out. <laughs> so in that in in growing up out there, um, I, you were a, a part of a, a very a pretty conservative Catholic family. Is yes. That, is that right? Um, yeah. Like I, I read that you wanted to be a priest, right? Yeah. Is that So yeah. what what about that was appealing. Wait, before you say that, uh, just quick, just to toss this in. My grandmother, who's Jewish, we're Jews, from Montreal, Canada, she went to Catholic school her entire life. And uh, they would beat her, hit her knuckles with a with a ruler well, right. in, in music class because she would play the piano and, and, and they didn't like what she was doing, so they'd whack her on the knuckles. Was there stuff like that when you guys were growing well, up, or was that, was that kind of gone by that? I'm too young for corporal, for corporal punishment. That's like maybe more my dad's age. Okay, um, okay. But, yeah, so I never had any of that stuff. Oh, that's good. But, you know, you do... One of the sacraments is reconciliation. That is where you can. That's where you confess your sins, oh, and wow. you do that in fourth grade. So you're oh, nine. Oh my god! So when you're nine, you spend the whole year with in your religious in your religion class, like going over what's wrong with you, essentially. And then it, and then that's you, heavy you for a go to the church, and there's a priest, you know, in a confessional, which is a booth not unlike this one, except you can't see the priest. And there's um, no podcasting. Going yeah, there's no right. podcasting. <laughs> it's not recorded that I know of. But um, then you tell the priest, like, what you have done wrong. And, it's, and then they give you um, penance, which is like a, a list of prayer an assignment of prayers and you so it'll be like okay you disrespected your parents 10 Hail Marys or something like that and so then you go down you get on your knees and you pray to have that wrong lifted and I mean that is a gnarly it is lesson for a nine-year-old to learn it's not slapping the knuckles but like something is inherently wrong with you you were born sinful and the, you have to pray it away. You have to pray it away. Ooh. And also you have to tell this person outside your family that you've never met before. Oh, my God. In a dark room. I mean, it's yeah. like literally, it's, it's not. bonkers. It's bonkers. And this was my life. And I and just what was, was that like? normal. What was it like for you being nine having to do that? Like, were you freaked out? Like, Or like, oh, this is just normal and this is what we do. And Yeah, it felt... Um, All of this felt impactful mm-hmm. and transformative for me. Yeah. So, I mean, you can convince yourself of anything. So I think so, I probably actually felt like free. Uh-huh. You yeah. know, like, oh, thank God. Right. Finally, my burden is lifted. 
What my br- burden of one time I thought a curse word or whatever mm-hmm. the heck because oh I because I was also like a very good kid because I was scared out of my mind. Of course, right? Now, like, I mean, how long? When did you? When did that break? When did you? When, when I was in 19, I out. was in college. I was a theology major, and I started reading the actual, like, not the Bible, which is what I had grown up reading, but the church church teachings. So mm. it's like what the Pope is signing onto and what the teaching body of the church says. I started reading that stuff, and... I think for me that just it like broke something in my brain because where the Bible I was like, okay, this was written a long time ago in a language I don't understand and it's interpreted and there's like some beauty to that and it's it's history. And then, you know, the stuff I was reading was just like stuff from 1989 or whatever that like a guy wrote that's like women aren't equal. You know what I mean? It's that I just was reading that going, well, this isn't perhaps translated badly or requires, right. you know, the finesse of looking through time. And this is just like some bullshit. Right, right. And I just felt like I saw it. And uh, and did that blow your mind? Yes, mm-hmm. it did. But did, did your, um, when did you come out in comparison to that time? Like when did you know, when, like in, in, in well, comparison to that period? Yeah, I mean it, it's, it's like a, it was a long road for me because I came out to my folks, but that went really badly. And then, um, how old were you when that happened? Around the same age. Yeah. Yeah. That went really badly. And what? I had way, a girlfriend. If you don't mind me asking. Or do you want, like, I mean, what? I, I don't want to. Oh, no. I mean, they were just. Or anything. Yeah. No. I mean, it's uh, in the way that they were worried for my eternal soul. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah. And so was I, actually. Mm. We both were. All, all three of us were. Um,. Yeah. So I think I came out to them and like one friend, it went really badly with a friend. I had a secret girlfriend. I could was at a college where you couldn't come out. You could be kicked out of school for being gay wow. at my at Boston College. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. And That's I graduated horrible. in 04. This is like from now. You oh, know? my so God. Anyway, my, what? my point is. Uh, is it still? They changed the rule in 05. Ooh. Wow. So what's that like, though? I mean, like. For someone who's there who's, you know, coming out, you have a girlfriend, you're in a relationship with somebody, but you can't share it? Yeah, I mean, it was... what I like, internally, that must be really, I mean, a very difficult time. I think I split into a lot of different selves, and Mm -hmm. I had, like, a thing I was doing publicly, which was sort of being the life of the party, and then a thing that I was doing privately, which was... Well, two things I was doing privately. One, being really sad and ashamed, and the other one, being in love and really excited. Mm-hmm. So I just think I, like, had three selves going on. Like, my fr- my college friends thought I was... I was, like, a wild party animal because it was, like, just this... It was a distraction. You know what I mean? I was, like, throwing a smoke bomb. Like, look over here at the fact that I'm always wearing a hula skirt. You know, like, it's... Like, you know, and then... Um, yeah, so I just had... I had three people that I was being... Mm-hmm. And sad me, who I didn't really share with anybody, happy me that I shared with my girlfriend, and then like fake sort of manic me that I shared with my friends. And were wow. you c- always cognizant of, oh, we can't, you know, have PDAs or hold hands or we have, we have to be very careful about um, like, strategizing about No, it wasn't even that uh-huh. like 
Well, also, okay, so I literally thought this was going to be the rest of my life. So it's not even like I was aware that what you, was going to be the rest of your life. This dynamic of the three of versions. the three selves. Oh, uh huh. And I, so I wasn't even aware that there was like a world where, like, censorship only exists if you have freedom. Like, you can only see censorship in a world where there's freedom, right? right? So, so the idea that I would have been able to, like, hold her hand outside of a bedroom was completely alien to me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wow so there was no yeah there wasn't there wasn't micro patrolling because it was like this is a secret right yeah and i will die with this secret you know wow Oh my god! I feel wow. like I've said "wow" like thirty-five <laughs> times. This is so like wow. Throwing podcast. smoke bombs and wearing hula skirts was basically your way of sort of like acting out or sort of releasing the stress from having to deal with. And all also, that just stuff. having a thing going on because mm-hmm. I because people you know that know you do want to like are kind of like what's going on with you. So I just made myself really unreliable so that they never nobody ever noticed. Like for instance, if I was like missing. Like, if I was spending time with my girlfriend, it was just because I would just go to a party and take off and just be gone for, like, three days. But they would be like, that's Cameron. Right. (laughs) She knows how she is. Right. She's she's just, she's wild. Mm -hmm. At some point during this uh, process, you start doing stand-up comedy. Um, what do you remember? What what year you started? Yeah, well, so I had started doing improv in college. I got my first job doing improv the day after I graduated from school. What? Yeah, where, yes. Where did you get the what job? Did a you place get? called Improv Boston. It was like just to be like on a house team there, which performed every Friday. And then I got I was on a, from there. I got cast in a main stage where I was doing six shows a week at a different theater. Oh wow! A couple weeks, a couple months later. And so I had like a full day job, but I just also was doing comedy professionally at night, but I was doing improv. So it was like, again, it was more of this sort of like, I'm a penguin, you know, like it was like, it was just kind of my whole life was that. (laughs) Right. Um, And then I, through improv, met some folks who hadn't been raised with the with the like hardcore Catholicism that I had been raised, and they were kind of like, I I mean I remember like sobbing coming out to like my improv company being like I, I, I yeah, and they're literally like, okay, I mean I guess we'll stop saying so many homophobic things on stage, mm-hmm. and like thanks for telling us, and it wasn't like they were perfect people with right. like a perfect record on this, but they were fine with me, and so right. anyway, they didn't say you were going to hell and all yes. that sort of stuff, so. From there, like testing out the waters and seeing a few people accept me, I finally just sort of hit a breaking point with improv where I was tired of fighting. And so I like just, you know, it's like a pendulum. I went like the opposite way. Like, okay, so like no one's going to accept me and I'm going to keep this a secret to like, um, I will become famously gay. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I will tell like if it's going to go badly with two people. Now I will tell 2,000 or 20,000 and see what those people think. And I just, I mean, I didn't, I was not what a aware of this. You know, I wasn't conscious thing. of this right, choice sure. at the time. But I just think that's exactly what was going on, was that I was just like, well, what if I tell everybody? Average, like, I'll just, I'll up the 
control group and see if we can like mess with this average. <laughs> did did it ever turn back around with your parents or are they? Oh still- yeah, yes, it did. I mean, it took five years, which yeah. and it in five you know tough years. You're like a young adult and everything, and I just had to sort of decide that I was okay um, being who I was, regardless of what they thought. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it yeah it took five years and. Then there was like a particular girlfriend that was the first person who both entered my family's life and purview, but that also I would bring to shows. And around the time I was 25, 26, actually, everything had sort of been like merged back into one. It was Mm -hmm. like I was one person again instead of a bunch of different people. You came out to your parents. You came out to some friends. You didn't get necessarily the reaction that you wanted. You didn't get a happy reaction. Right. Um, and you are doing stand-up at the time. Did stand-up sort of help you navigate that? Yeah. At all? Like, did it help you sort of, I don't know, find some comfort in your life through through stand-up? I mean, I think there were, like, two things happening at the same time. One is I would see that I was bringing people joy, making them laugh, I would feel in community with the audience. I still feel like really hyper connected to the audience all the time. I'm very like into that vibe. Um, I love talking to people. I like love being present in the room that I'm in. So all of that was, first of all, I was not good when I started doing stand-up. Nobody is good. But I had this background in improv and I knew how to connect with people. So like that was amazing to be able to out myself, but then connect with people is amazing and really healing. Um, I mean, from other comics, not so much at the time. Your reaction from other comics, yes, Uh yeah. How how so? I mean, uh, was the support just not there from? Yeah, it's like you know, it's like early hazing, super super fratty. Um, right. Super macho. Where were you? Where were you performing? Chicago. I started in uh, Chicago. Yeah. And no. Did six years there, and like, I worked my way through the scene, and I fucking earned every spot I got, like in spades. You know, well, like I had the, to work very hard to be taken seriously. It's like one female comic for every forty or fifty male. Com- the numbers like were the- even more bonkers than that when I started. I think it was one for every probably hundred. Um, which is just gnarly to think about. It's it's, oh, yeah. it's 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 already different now because of the internet. Yeah. The internet mm-hmm. has changed this. But when I started doing stand up, um, the internet wasn't really a factor yet in things. Like the we were literally still like recording sets, burning them on DVDs, and like Handing handing them, them to the booker. For the, right. there was no like here's a link to my set or whatever, let alone a Twitter account. Like, I mean, that started in 2006. That's like around the same time-ish, a little bit after that I started doing stand-up. So anyway, my point is um, people thought I was doing something else. Like, they're like, you're getting up and talking about being gay. This is stand-up. And I'm like, you're getting up and talking about being straight <laughs> right you just don't realize it you know what yeah, i mean right, right, and right. so that i think that actually still exists is this sort of like one viewpoint that is accepted as being stand-up mm-hmm. sure and everything outside of that is like 
niche or whatever. Yeah, right, like, right, but right. it's like, it's but like I'm alt, just a alt comics. I'm just a like, black person mm. talking about my life. That's just a white person talking about their life. Like this is just right. all this. We're all doing the same thing. After the break, more great stories with Cameron Esposito. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. At what point were you feeling like, okay, this is something I can do for a living. This is something I can do for the rest of my life. It was it was so it was slow because it just was like about cobbling together actual money. I don't know that I ever thought it was something I would do forever. It was mm-hmm. just literally like incrementally putting together a living, which I think is something that I'm very happy about starting in Chicago because mm-hmm. I that's like a it's a strong skill set to arrive in LA with. L- like for instance, it kept me away from ever needing to have a day job here because I let go of my day job in Chicago long before I moved here and okay. just figured out how to have like I'll do I'll host this open mic which will pay me this much money. I'll teach this class which will pay me this much money. I'll do that and I they were all things that I was generating and pitching. And so then anyway, that's a great skill set to have to move here because I feel like a lot of times um, the folks I see get caught up. It's like just showing up to auditions maybe isn't enough or whatever. Right. Like just showing up to shows isn't enough. You kind of have to, I think, finagle your own thing. Yeah, and you have. I mean, you have uh, quite a career of of, uh, of acting and creating and, and being in all sorts of different stuff. I mean, you were in uh, the movie Slight, which was totally badass and super cool. Brooklyn Nine Nine, you've done uh, done that show, and uh, and I mean, Danger and Eggs, Adventure Time. You've done lots of voiceover and and lots of fun stuff. And then um, you uh, did you on 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 Take My Wife. Was that like how did that come about? Um, yeah, I mean, before before the network CISO even existed, uh, because that was a it was a branch of NBC Universal that yeah. is now defunct, and Take My Wife exists on Stars now. Um, yeah, I just had like lunch with some some exec who was at the time at NBC and saying that they were looking for new talent and um, 
I was hosting a stand-up show at the time, and they allotted enough money to essentially create a stand-up show that was going to have these interstitial sketches in it. And um, we convened a writer's room, and I mean, this is actually truly like the most bonkers story of all time, but we convened a writer's room to write these sketches. And then when we got in there, like called the network and was like, we actually think this should be a scripted show. So will you like multiply our budget by this amount? Oh, wow. Yeah. Whoa. And they said yes. So Holy crap. Are you that's serious? Crazy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so that was the show, and um, and it was an incredibly exciting time because it was when, like, all of the streaming services were nascent, and so every show was sort of a micro-budget show. Mm-hmm. You know, before Orange is the New Black happened, um, Netflix and Hulu and all that stuff just looked different. It was just... Right. Everything was like, well, what's the least amount of money we can spend, or whatever. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it was during that time. And because it wasn't a huge risk financially, I got to control the thing, which was amazing. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's an extraordinary thing. And we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, just that um, this industry, when it comes to comedians, they just go, well, if you can do it. Yes. You, you, you can, of course you can do it. Of course you can be the creator of a show and yes. be the writer and be the star and everything involved. Was that a uh, like a daunting thing for you was it I mean scary? when I sold that show I, I actually sold two sh- two TV shows and a book that in the same month oh my god oh, wow. and that was I'd been in LA for um maybe two and a half years Wow. And so I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I'd literally never been in a writer's room, and I went right to running a show. Wow! <laughs> and I also had another show in development at the t- at the time with FX. And then I was trying to write a memoir. And I'm I'm not a I'm not any of these things. So um, it was an incredible experience where I learned how to run a show. I think I learned how to do that job um, over those two years, or at least a version of that job that I'm excited to figure out how to build on in the future. And I was trying to figure out how to do all of this stuff. You know, it was like the first show happened and then that went away because he so went under and then I was working on the second show and then that went away because things are complicated and sometimes people just pass after a thousand drafts and then and then it was time to write the book. So yeah. so the book is called Save Yourself. Is it your memoir? Is it a Yes, memoir it's like life? about um it's about college and it's about some of the stuff we talked about earlier with mm-hmm. my upbringing and then when I figured out I was queer and what that experience was like. Wow. And it's it's really funny, I think, and also writing a book is um very challenging and I don't know why anybody thought that I could do that. But I did. But somehow. you did it. Yes. Yeah. Because you're, you ins- you're insanely yes. talented, that's another that's door why. you've knocked down. Um, I just wanted to go back a little bit in the sense that um, when you first, well, not when you first came to LA, because I remember like you and I met several years ago, I think it was yeah. like a Jonah Ray's birthday party. That's exactly right. And um, uh, I think you and Rhea were just doing lots of stuff together, right? You were doing yes. uh, your podcasts, put your hands together, things like that. Um, what was that time like for you moving from Chicago, coming to LA, trying to, you know, establish yourself? Yeah, I just, I was just full of hustle. I mean, I just had like an idea of what I should do, which is like, I knew I should try to get a show Mm -hmm. uh, that I could produce locally. So like found a partner in, um, Ryan McMenamin from a special thing records and we went and pitched a show that was a stand-up podcast, pitched that to the UCB. 
Um, I had the podcast that was about action movies because I was like, podcasting is a thing. You know, like I just was trying to like sort of secure um, some stable footing. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because now I'm sort of back in that place again. Bit of like a rebuilding moment. It's, I think this is part of it. You know, like I think you always are, it's like this is just how time works. You have to sell the thing and then do the thing and then you get to move on or whatever. It's like that I'm like essentially repeating the same process. Mm-hmm. Here's my spot in town. Here's my podcast. And, you know, here's the next projects that I'll work on. And it's I'm at a very different place because yeah. I am a headliner and I have all these experiences and relationships and stuff. But it also feels identical in some ways to that right. moment of moving here. Sure. I mean, like yeah. you you and your um, ex-wife um, were pretty visible around town, doing lots of stuff together, lots of shows. Now that you're on your own, do you feel like you sort of have to like reinvent yourself a little bit? Do you have to do, try new, like you're saying, you're doing all these new things, but do you feel like you just kind of have to, this is who I am, this is who I am on my own? Do you have to feel like you kind of have to go through some of that to, to, to the town a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I knew who I was, and I've always known who I was, but I just, I wanted to share it. Um, and I think that I don't know what's next after that. Like, I that was very, you know, when I, when I met someone that I thought I could essentially, like, on board and yeah. with it and we'll go mm-hmm. um that was really exciting and trying to figure together out for a long time right yeah seven years but time, yeah. you know just trying to figure out like i had already been doing comedy for 10 years before i was right. with them so i think it's just trying to figure out what is the space that's just mine and not be embarrassed because of public failure um and not that divorce is a failure, but it feels oh. like a failure. And also just like remember that I've did this before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I also think this is kind of part of it. You know, like the most successful shows, they last for six years. Sure. That mm-hmm. person still has to do another thing. Yeah. The most successful comics, once you're at the top, the only place to go is down and like kind of the best thing that could happen for you is that you don't hit that like till your 40s honestly because mm-hmm. if you hit that in your 20s or 30s it's like what are you what the fuck are you supposed to do next i mean i mean obviously financially we would all love to just be like getting paid forever but i just mean the segmented nature of the thing that I'm going through is what I've always believed we're all going through. It looks different than I thought it would. Like, I didn't think it would be about uh, something in my personal life. But career-wise, nothing's the thing. Like, it is, I guess, like, uh, pretty incredible that my network got canceled, not my show. Like, that is, like, a little bit more rare. Um, Also that my show was literally called Take My Wife. You gotta be fucking kidding me! But, um... But this is the thing. Like, this is the job. Yeah. You wrote something in the New York Times. Yeah, I wrote something in the New York Times. And, um, which is an amazing uh, op-ed piece. And, And in it, you sort of talk about how you 
sort of look at yourself as the comeback kid. Right? Yes. Um, so, you know, how how do you bounce back from a divorce or how do you, um, you know, I there was one funny thing in the article where you said you accidentally downed a dose of your dog's CBD oil. Oh, no, not accidentally. On purpose. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, what happened? Oh, just like, you know, sleepless nights. It's breakups lead to sleepless nights. And there was sure. one particular night I couldn't sleep and like... I don't have CBD oil, but my dog does. So I did I did I fucking take my dog's CBD oil? <laughs> you bet I did. You bet I did. How do you come back? I mean, That's I will say incredible. this. I well, what have, motivates you to 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 keep coming back? Like oh, you said, God. like you know, you feel like you know you're the comeback kid that you you sort of um, you know always are bouncing back. Like mm-hmm. I think you mentioned something about. Um, when you were younger, you know, you got cut from the swim team and then the next year you were, you made captain. So yes. what sort of resolve, I guess, do you have within you that sort of makes you want to bounce back? Because there are plenty of times when people just don't. They're like, wow. Yeah, I just, I'm out. I'm out. Like, <laughs> yep. I, can't, I can never recover from this, you know? You know, I think like, well, there's two things. Number one, I'm, I am t- borderline too sincere to do the job that I do because like a lot of stand-up is about distance and satire and and shitting on something you know like Mm -hmm. that's a that's it that's the basis for my job and I think I do the same thing that a lot of people do but I'm just like I'm just a little bit sincere and so um I think part of the bouncing back from this is that I just have to be honest about it I can't pretend this didn't happen it happened publicly that's why i wrote that piece for the times Mm -hmm. i can't just like i don't know being in green rooms with other comics since then it's like sometimes people are like averting their eye i'm literally like just ask me (laughs) about it it's Uh happened i just um i want to have those real conversations and then also i think another thing is like almost nobody in human history has gotten to do the job they wanted to do it's like zero percent the average of people, you know, zero yeah. percent. Um, I got to do this job. I like got over the finish line of initial success where I make my living doing this. From there, it's all just like le- levels. You're just working on levels. But I'm already, I already do this for a living, mm-hmm. and I, I think I'm not really willing to give it up. Like I really, I think I'm good at my job, and I think I'm sp- supposed to do it, and I also love it, and. I like all the other parts of it, too, um, including trying to figure out how the fuck to write a book. You know, like, it's like, yeah. I like that it's hard, like I said earlier. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, I did say take some time to be, like, fully down for the count this year, and it's changed me a little bit. You know, like, I didn't I didn't way? process this all in public. Um, I, have, I have closer friends than I ever have before because I really was super honest and vulnerable with individual humans as opposed to groups of thousands of people oh on the internet yeah on the internet or you know in an audience Mm -hmm. oh totally Um, that makes a lot of sense tried to be like you know because i knew that i wanted to protect myself and protect the future of my career by not like processing stuff that was inappropriate out in the world um so yeah i have like better friends and i think i know myself better you know, earlier was talking about this pendulum swing between like I told three people that I was gay, it fucking sucks. So then I told everyone else, <laughs> right. you know, the yeah. whole world. And I feel like that 
is also just, you know, for a while, what made me feel the safest was to talk on stage with a bunch of strangers. And that has changed in the last year. And now what makes me feel safest is some folks that I'm having like a face-to-face conversation and they know me really well. Yeah. And that's probably good because I certainly know people who get into that zone of the people I I feel safest with um, an audience or or even on a podcast like this. Like this is not the deepest conversation I'm going to have today, you know, and it maybe would have been. for me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like, I mean, that's the, that's what I'm saying. The like skin that I'm shedding or whatever Mm -hmm. in this is, is probably good. Right. Because I've seen people get stuck in that I'm only giving it like a, a sort of distant thing, a projected image of myself to a bunch of people. Sure. I'm just, I feel a little no, bit grateful that. that I'm not getting stuck there. No, right. I, I right. think that's wonderful. Um, I, I do have a question, uh, one or two little questions before we got to wrap up because we do have Good. to wrap up soon. Here's, yeah. First question is, if you were to create another TV show or yes. if a TV show it would be created, and uh, would you do it about your personal life and, and, and do it that way where you're casting people to play friends and relatives and things like that? Or would you do it... Um, about something else and if you did do that's it, a good question and if you do do what it about yourself question. how do you handle that well um look my my comedy has always been personal it just has that's the thing i do so um i think i will always work on pr- personal projects what that actually looks like might shift like i don't think it's always going to look exactly the same um but i think it's it's always going to be personal and like okay you get you know, something doesn't work out the way that you wish it would and it was personal. I don't know that that makes me be a different person, you know, that now suddenly pitches Game of Thrones. Like, I just don't think I'm ever going to be that person. Right. There's some realism that I'm (laughs) approaching the world with about myself. I love that. That's great. You shot a comedy special (laughs) called Rape Jokes. Yes. Um, One last question. You said that you want to leave a legacy. Yes. And in order to leave a legacy, you need to get in the way. That's right. That's what? the end of rape jokes. What do you mean Beautiful, by that? Right? I thought that I was really. It. I thought that was a really amazing. Yeah. I mean, you you'll have to watch your special and see the whole yeah. story. But um, to get in the way, I think is very uh, a profound thing. And I want to know what you know for people who are listening. What you mean by that? Yeah. Well, in this particular, in its application in rape jokes, it was about um, a dude friend of mine stepping between me. And this person who had assaulted me to prevent further violence. And this was just like happenstance that this that this happened, that this person was there at the right time and had this reaction. And I do think that in terms of what I'm trying to do as a comic, as a person, trying to create a safe space for myself. And also, I'm a white person. I come from the fucking suburbs I have some financial stability and I think that it is my responsibility to be the a shield, you know, to be the person with the machete like going through the jungle. And I because because I can do that. Like I mm-hmm. actually have the you know, skill set and the privilege that I can. I think because I can then I must. Mhm. 
Um, but that also involves taking care of yourself. So that's the other side that's not really in there that I'll say applies to our conversation here today. Just like if you if you if you need to be, you know, this like savior or whatever, uh, save yourself. That's why the book is called that. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so that's what I'm trying to work on is um, taking really good care of myself because mm-hmm. I do feel like I'm going to be the stone in the river for the rest of my life. It's just right. the personality I happen right. to have been dealt. Well, you're That's making awesome. fantastic choices. Thank you. This was really, it was really nice to talk with you both. Yeah, well, thank yeah. you so much for Thanks coming. Thanks a lot in. for it was coming to have you here. Yeah, it really was. Woo! We're gonna open this door, and it's gonna feel like Ugh. real oxygen. Yeah, right? <laughs> Can you even wait? I can't. I can't wait. Oh my lord! Thanks again for thank coming you. to do Never thank Surrender. Thank you. Never Surrender is produced by Western Sound. Executive producers are Jack Hergoth, Stephen Kramer Glickman, and Ben Adair. Producers are Sabrina Fang and Cameron Kell. Music by Hannes Brown. On social media, you can check us out on Instagram at NeverSurrenderPod, on Twitter at SurrenderPod, and on Facebook at NeverSurrenderPodcast. You can also email us at NeverSurrenderPodcast at gmail.com to share your own stories about how you struggled, failed, and ultimately never surrendered. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.